Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to RNZ's Insight programme. This week, climate change. The focus is narrowing again on climate change with international meetings, including this weekend's G20 meeting in Germany, looking at world commitment to reduce greenhouse gases. Pacific leaders have been talking this week in order to get ready for a meeting of parties to the UN Convention on Climate Change in November. In this country, elections are just a couple of months away. So how important is global warming to political parties here? This year is set to be the hottest recorded globally in recent times. Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have reached the symbolic threshold of 400 parts per million. Small island states have called for a global moratorium on new coal mines, while the groups also joined the regional chorus for a reduction in emissions. The news surrounding climate change is grim. Record temperatures, severe storms and flooding. The debates around nations' efforts to reduce emissions are often heated and complex, and the US President Donald Trump has followed through on his pledges to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, the international accord to restrict global warming. President Trump described the accord as hamstringing the United States while empowering some of the world's top polluting countries. He said, we're getting out, but we will try to renegotiate a deal that's fair. But the German Chancellor Angela Merkel is renewing international efforts with her declaration that she would focus the current G20 summit in Hamburg on climate change. In the Pacific, climate change ministers met in Suva in the past week to prepare the ground for a global meeting later this year. Fiji's Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, opened the meeting saying Pacific nations were fighting for their very survival, especially extremely low-lying nations such as Tuvalu, Kiribati and the Marshall Islands. Of all, uh, of all the num- uh, vulnerable nations of the world, you are the most vulnerable. Of all the moral force we can master to remind the world of its obligation, you have the greatest moral force of all. Because to allow sovereign nations to slip beneath the rising seas altogether to preserve the economies and lifestyles of others would be an act of unparalleled selflessness and injustice. Frank Bainimarama said the world faced challenges because the American government had abandoned its leadership on this issue. But he said the door was always open to President Trump. But in the meantime, every nation must be fortified to stay on course. This insight asks if the American withdrawal is having an impact here and if New Zealand itself is fortified to stay the distance. It's a little over a week since the new United States ambassador to New Zealand, Scott Brown, presented his credentials to the Governor-General, Dame Patsy Reddy. But even then he was asked about the decision by President Trump to pull out of the Paris Agreement. The fact that we pulled out of the Paris Agreement, quite frankly, we've been doing the types of environmental uh, you know, carbon reductions for years. We had one of the, the largest decreases uh, this past uh, year. And we're not going to stop innovating. We're not going to stop you know, creating innovation and opportunities and, and the ability to not only live within our environment, respecting the environment and creating jobs and whether they're clean jobs or whether they're just job jobs, uh, I think we, we, we've been doing that forever. And just because we pulled out of an agreement where, quite frankly, the president didn't feel like it was fair, 
in terms of uh, whether the, the, the regulations, the kind of the government bureaucracy, almost that English Brexit EU type of situation where they, it would just would have been too big to actually get things done. We're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to work with individual countries to come up with ways and in, in new innovative ways to you know, deal and protect our environment. But in Hawaii, they're defiant. The state became the first in the US to turn the Paris Agreement climate goals into official policy in an effort to keep America on track to fulfill its pledges despite the withdrawal at federal level. On Honolulu's main tourist beach of Waikiki, crowds gather for the free weekly performance of Hawaiian music and hula dancing. But of all the states, why should the beautiful island state of Hawaii be the one to step forward? Jeff Michalina of a local environment organisation, the Blue Planet Foundation, says everything isn't as wonderful as it looks. It's beautiful here, but otherwise, underneath the surface, we have some challenges. Um, we are an island. We are completely dependent on imports, both for energy and food. Um, we have all the challenges that you'd have with any uh, major city or developed area, everything from runoff, uh, waste issues. Um, Hawaii is somewhat unique in that you know, we're the endangered species capital of the world with some you know, 316 endangered plants and animals. Um, so there, That's a lot, isn't it? It, it is, and it's, it, part of the reason is, you know, Hawaii developed so isolated and we didn't have those influences. Species grew up here without the, um, some of the selective pressures in, in other areas, so they, they became quite unique. While the title Endangered Species Capital of the World may not be completely factual, it does underline the environmental challenges the island state faces, and many of those could be made worse by climate change. Uh, last year we imported about 43 million barrels of oil, uh, which cost some $4 billion. Uh, people are surprised to learn that we have a coal-fired power plant on our main island of Oahu. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is we're making uh, good progress on renewable electricity. Uh, two years ago, we set a law uh, setting a target of 100% renewable electricity by 2045, uh, and we're currently about 26% of our energy from renewable sources, which that's, that's the glass, glass a quarter full, but the three quarters is that uh, fossil fuel. Um, and Hawaii, it, we really need to rein in our contribution to climate change simply because we're so vulnerable to the effects. From hurricanes to rising sea levels uh, to ocean acidification, which really affects the food source, uh, it's, it's, a, it's going to be a serious challenge for Hawaii in the future. And Hawaii's beaches are suffering already from change. Sea level rise is starting to uh, impact Hawaii. We've seen some sea level rise already. Uh, it exacerbates the existing conditions, which are things like seawalls and other things that erode the beach. So the main beach in Waikiki, you know, it's beautiful on the postcard and beautiful for folks that come and experience it. Um, but there, it takes a lot of effort to replenish that beach and keep the sand there. Uh, they dredge it up offshore and bring it on. Um, that happens at night when no one's watching, you know. And there's going to be more of that in the future as we experience uh, that sea level rise, as well as flooding, increased storm surge, uh, and then a real risk of saltwater intrusion in our freshwater lens. You know, we rely on this freshwater lens in the, uh, in the island, and if we have more of that pressure from the rising ocean, uh, that could create challenges.
visit to Niue last month, the Prime Minister, Bill English, announced that New Zealand would provide $5 million to upgrade Niue's renewable energy generation. The aim is to lift the amount of renewable energy supplied to the island from 13% to 40% by next year. Bill English told the audience on Niue that everyone had to do their bit. So I think that demonstrates to the uh, government of Niue the commitment of uh, those who were at the energy conference to follow through on uh, some pretty big ideas actually about renewable energy across the Pacific and it is just fantastic to see the picture, um, the picture actually unfolding. Uh, you mentioned the Paris Agreement. Uh, small economies and small countries I think sometimes wonder you know, what they can contribute but the only way the world changes is one step at a time and this is another step, and it's the piece that Nui can do. The Paris Agreement, signed in 2015 and ratified last year, established specific actions and targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and also mitigating and adapting to the effects of climate change. It also set out provisions to supply financial help to developing countries to deal with the impacts of global warming. Signatory countries agreed to work to limit global temperature rise to below 2 degrees Celsius and to make strong efforts to keep the rise to 1.5. The agreement is also especially significant because it's legally binding. So what has this country said it will do in its official nationally determined contribution? David Frame is a climate change professor at Victoria University. We've agreed to a 30% um, reduction in our emissions on um, 2005 levels um, by 2030. We've also got a 2050 target of minus 50% on our 1990 levels. Um, so that's, you know, we've sort of got two targets. One of them, the 2030, was that's what most countries have put in under the Paris uh, agreements, so the other developed countries have got similar targets, targets similarly expressed. They may choose a different baseline year. And what are the plans to ensure New Zealand lives up to those pledges? If you know on day one exactly how you're going to get there, um, on, on one hand that could be because you've got a really well thought out target and plan, um, or it could be because you're not stretching yourself. So um, we know that technological change is an important feature of this problem. We know that we need to transition to a low-carbon future to stop having to worry about climate change. So those are things that I think New Zealand's working on. I don't think anybody thinks we have um, job done on that stuff. But I think in that sense we have a slightly different set of issues from other, other countries where... We're something like 47th in the world in terms of carbon dioxide emissions per capita. Because we have a large share of methane emissions, there's actually some, that again, it throws up some pretty open questions about how much we should be doing on methane compared to CO2. Um, and those questions are quite technical and fiddly and you could arrive at different answers um, equally credibly. The significance of methane versus carbon dioxide is a strongly debated topic, with carbon dioxide persisting in the atmosphere, while methane disappears much more quickly, but acting more effectively as a heat trap during that time. But David Frame says whatever the targets, there needs to be an agreed way to get there. I think it's 
important to separate out the target, what you're aspiring to do, from the policies that mean that you're going to get there or not. So I liken it a little bit to imagine you've got a, a target uh, you know, that takes several months, like you want to run a half marathon or, or lose some weight or something. You, you set a target, you then have to enact policies in order to make that target credible. And simply cranking up the target doesn't actually help the credibility on its own. So if I'm if I'm trying to lose you know five kilos by um, September and all I'm doing is eating more pies, I, I'm not actually helping. And, and just saying I'm going to lose ten kilos by September instead of five is not going to doesn't help the credibility of the target. So it's actually behaviours and policies that that ultimately determine whether or not you get there. David Frame says the changes are tracking very much as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicted they would. We expect a wetening in the west in, in winter. We expect um, a drying on the whole in the east. The eastern areas, they may well end up with fewer extreme events, um, maybe. On the whole, areas that are open to the north, you would probably expect more of these kind of really explosive rainfall bursts. The sort of flooding we've seen in Northland and Edgecombe and places like that and Nelson a few years ago, um, we expect that to be on the rise. Droughts are the one that are economically very expensive because of our large primary sector, um, but floods are personally devastating. You know, the, the, the sense of invasion people get is, is, really, is really bad. So we need to think more, I think, about what we do in the face of climate impacts because New Zealand's spent a long time and a lot of effort arguing about climate mitigation policy, arguing about uh, a price, be it a tax or an ETS system and how agriculture might fit in and all these kinds of things. But we've we've comparatively underinvested in ensuring that we're um, well prepared to deal with the impacts of climate change. And, and given that we're actually a tiny slice of global emissions, that's the bit we can't control. We can't directly control what the outcomes are for New Zealand. So we have to try and think a bit harder about that. Fiji's bracing itself for a second deluge after some of the worst flooding the country's seen in decades. It's feared the second downpour expected later today will compound sanitation problems. Cyclone Pam has wiped out all development in the nation. It's estimated at least half the population has been left homeless by the Category 5 storm. Tutonga now, where the country is bracing itself for what could become a Category 5 cyclone over the next 24 hours. Victoria Keener is a research fellow at the East-West Centre in Honolulu, and she works with a team of specialists who try to turn academic research on climate change into practical action for those under threat. She feels that in the United States, the idea developing is to work with other states rather than rely on national policy. I think that the states are going to have to step up quite a lot in the next couple of years to take on, um, to take on more emissions cutting um, a lot of the, their, their initiatives within the U.S., like the Rockefeller 100 Cities initiative, where um, large cities are, are taking it upon themselves to cut emissions. Uh, governors are working across um, state lines to uh, come up with strategies together. So, so really, right now, we can't rely on the U.S. in a federal sense. In the Pacific, Dr. Keener says island nations are also looking to cooperate and to help each other. For example, one of the projects we have is working with uh, the Navy and the DOD in Guam. Um, and so the government of Guam and the Navy bases in Guam were wondering, um, so they're having this military buildup there, they're getting a lot of Marines coming in in the next couple of years, um, and they want to know how their freshwater systems will be able to accommodate um, all these new people under future climate conditions.
So, um, you know, they have these two different water systems that are managed by the government and the, and the military, and they want to know how climate change is going to impact that. So we work with them. Um, we have a team that does the climate model. They call it downscaling, taking a global climate model and making it applicable to a small island like Guam. Uh, so projections of temperature and precipitation that are very um, finely, um, finely downscaled. So we have climate change. There's a specific amount of climate change here working with the water utilities and the government and the military who jointly manage this system, how can we plan for a future that we know is going to be different um, and best accommodate the water needs of all these different users? Also based in Honolulu is a law professor at the University of Hawaii, Maxine Burkett. She's been researching climate-induced migration, displacement and relocation. She says small island states are in need of proactive policy development. But she also acknowledges that at this stage, it's difficult to quantify the numbers being affected. It's really difficult to tease out where climate change is in, uh, inducing migration from other drivers of migration at this point. I, down the line, I think certainly as climate change becomes more, uh, the impacts of climate change become more um, sort of apparent and uh, undeniable, there will be it would be much easier to say I have had to move because I can't uh, live in X place because of sea level rise or Y place because of lack of fresh water or drinking water or something like that. At this point, though, we know that it's probably operating um, amidst the multiple drivers of migration. That said, Professor Burkett says the time is now to start working out what's best to do. There is, I think, on a country-by-country level a need to have a conversation about how we're going to deal with the migration of people, and it's either going to be more coordinated or more chaotic, right? Uh, More humanitarian and and human rights-based or more security and exclusion or, you know, sort of that national security language that is not always for the best of the individual or community, but really looking more at sort of uh, national security concerns that sometimes don't take human rights or human humanitarian concerns um, as as seriously as it might. I think a proactive and rights-based approach will be optimal, and I think it's only possible if we think uh, for thinking ahead with respect to our immigration policy. Back in New Zealand, the climate change minister, Paula Bennett, says the Trump withdrawal has changed the dynamic. And in many respects, it's because um, you know America has some of the, you know, some of the best scientists actually had done a lot of work in this area and knew it very well. And so, in that context, were quite forward leaning as far as um, leading different streams of work that were coming out of Paris. So having that pull back um, definitely will have an effect. So. And in some respects, I don't think it's stopped the momentum of anything. Other countries are stepping up now. In some respects, they're sort of going, you know, you don't get to dictate whether or not we, you know, the world makes a difference um, in climate change. And so the momentum's still there, but I do think it will have an effect. But has the change in Washington galvanised action here? And how much prominence will climate change matters be given in the run-up to the general elections? particularly alongside other um, work we're doing um, within the environment portfolios. Um, so you can see that right, you know, I mean, I include the work really amongst DOC and certainly in forestry as well, and then with environment um, and then climate change alongside of it, not in any of those particular orders, by the way, but order. But you can see that it's all work that combines to us making a difference. So, um, look, I'm not going to say that it's going to be in the top three or something, um, but it certainly will be something that we take seriously and we'll have policy on. The minister says there are some new policies, but they're still being worked on. But she accepts that while climate change is being felt here, 
the pointy end is being experienced by Pacific Island nations. Paula Bennett says while New Zealanders are suffering here with extreme weather and erosion, for the people of the Pacific, it's their home and their food gardens that are being hit. But she rejects the idea that letting people move to New Zealand would be a helpful way of dealing with the effects of climate change. After visiting those countries, it's really interesting. I mean, they want to stay, and they want to stay in their, in their country. Um, it is their nationality and where they're from. So that's not something that we're considering at the moment, and there are things that we can do to help them that, that already are making a difference, and we can do more of them. Um, so in some of the um, mitigation work that we're doing, but even around adaptation, you know, um, in some we've, like, filled in the burrow pits that were left after the World Wars, and that means you're literally reclaiming land. Um, some of it in Kiribati, we look at um, you know rubbish and how they get rid of that and everything else, and we can literally look at some fairly big projects around reclamation and um, and really even ra- raising the, the atolls themselves so that they're better protected. Labor's climate change spokesperson, Megan Woods, laments what she sees as a lack of leadership being shown by the United States with the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. But she also thinks others are stepping into the breach. In reality, the, the pull-out from Paris actually can't happen until two, day, two or three days after the next US presidential elections. It's always hard to get out of these international agreements, so it will take time to wind back. Um, but it's that lack of moral leadership, and um, we expect to see the United States um, first and front of centre in terms of um, leadership in the world. on One of the most important issues facing the globe. And our neighbourhood is one of the most at-risk parts of the world. We see it in New Zealand and we see it even more starkly in the Pacific. I mean, while we can um, talk about climate change and the effects, meanwhile in the Pacific there's villages that are already in the process of moving or have moved. And this is something that New Zealand has to take absolutely seriously. We have a leadership position in this part of the world and that we've always got to be willing to to take a stand. Traditionally New Zealand has done that, um, that we stood up against French nuclear testing in the Pacific, that New Zealand has um, provided that leadership. She says for her party, climate change is not seen as a separate issue, but is firmly entwined as part of Labour's planning for the future and as part of their vision of a new economy. One of our immediate actions will be setting up an independent climate commission and putting in place carbon budgeting. Those things are absolutely critical, as is getting whole-of-government transitions planning. Um, We can talk about the transition to a low-carbon economy, we can talk about all these things, but we've got to put the component parts of government together. What are the workforce requirements? What are the skills requirements? How does this fit with regional economic development plans? And that's all thinking that we've been doing and we've been doing over the last three years within our Future of Work Commission. So that's stuff that we're rearing to go on. This is the kind of fresh thinking that we've got to give to climate change. We can't just set these targets, not meet them, and somehow magically expect to meet them the following year. We've got to have carbon budgeting, we've got to have planning, but most of all, we've got to have a government that is committed to that economic transformation, which isn't going to happen without strong government leadership. Megan Woods says there is policy still to be announced, but in 2014, Labor's plan was to bring agriculture into the Emissions Trading Scheme, or ETS, about a year after it was able to form a government. The trading scheme is one of the methods to control emissions by putting a price on any greenhouse gas, but it's come in for criticism, not least for the delay in bringing agriculture under the scheme.
The Green Party, however, has the trading scheme firmly in its sights. Its co-leader, James Shaw, says climate change is at the heart of Green's policy, but there's still more to come before the election. The main thing is that, you know, as we know, the emissions trading scheme is busted because emissions have continued to rise for the whole time that we've had the ETS in place uh, and that we need to put a proper price uh, on, on our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and that there are really three sectors that require a lot of attention because of the level of emissions that come from, come from them, which is transport, energy and agriculture. And so that's where our focus is going to be. He says Greens support Labour's plans for a commissioner and lays the claim to thinking up the idea first. The party also has plans to help those in the region who may want to move because life has become impossible due to climate change. What we proposed is to set up a new humanitarian visa category because people who are displaced by climate change and rising seas are not recognised by the United Nations Refugee Agency as refugees, so we can't bring them in under the regular refugee programme, resettlement programme. But we do know that there are people who are being internally displaced in the islands already as a result of rising seas and that we need to get ahead of that problem because... That is going to become a a real problem when some of those islands disappear below the waves. For Pacific Island nations, climate change is a real and pressing threat. But James Shaw thinks New Zealanders are taking time to realise how global warming is affecting life here. So we have already had more intense and more frequent droughts. I think a lot of people will realise that we're having more intense and more frequent flooding events. The Port Hills fires, which, you know, the photographs coming out of there looked a lot like Sydney in the summer. Uh, and all of those things collectively starting to show a pattern that we are already suffering the effects of climate change. So that's the first thing, is to kind of get our heads around what's already happening. Um, second of all, uh, it, you know, it's pretty important that we get a sort of nationwide view of, um, you know, how we can adapt. So we've got to get a, a good sense of... Uh, you know, we need to be able to help local authorities adapt to rising seas. At the moment, they're on their own with that. Um, we need to help our farming communities get ahead of what it means in terms of those more frequent uh, droughts uh, and floods. Um, and in particular, we're going to need to resolve some of the questions around coastal communities. For law professor Maxine Burkett, it's crucial to prepare now for the pressures that are likely to develop in the region in the future. I do think climate change and... and Uh, heading off some of the greatest risks is about what we're willing to put on the table or take off the table. And so that in that regard, it is about what's probable and are we comfortable with that outcome. And so the longer we wait to make a, to have sound policies with respect to how people move under stress, uh, the more we are leaving the, leaving open the likelihood of, of conflict, uh, the individual household and national level. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. Extra reporting for this programme was by our Deputy Political Editor, Chris Bramwell. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. This programme was produced by Teresa Cowie with technical production by Phil Benj. If you'd like to sample other Insight programs, you can head to iTunes or your Android provider, or you can go to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash insight. It's been great to have you with us, and thanks for listening.